This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. We're going back to 1840. Get your booze, your hard cider. Prop open the door of the log cabin and return with me to that raucous campaign where the Whig Party showed that they had learned all the lessons from their rivals, the Democratic Party. They learned how to tickle the public fancy or make the so-called hurrah appeal as presidential elections turned into a competition for the affections of all white men. You might notice some of this happening in today's politics where candidates appeal to the popular sentiment rather than perhaps the virtues of the underlying issue. We spent time in 1840 in a previous episode of Whistlestop with William Henry Harrison, the Whig victor of this contest, who became the first candidate to be elected on the umbrage ticket, turning a slight or a perceived slight into political gold. Now it's time to learn about Democrat Martin Van Buren, political strategist from New York, old Kinderhook as they called him, the name of the town he was from. Van Buren had helped Andrew Jackson get elected in 1828 and helped form the new Democratic Party. But in 1840, he fell victim to the kind of organization and politicking he'd done so well, including, in this campaign, becoming the target of perhaps one of the best, certainly one of the most baroque, negative attacks in campaign history. Is that okay by you? Good. Because among other things for which this campaign can be credited is the popularization of that expression. Okay. Okay? Okay. Okay! But first, a word from our sponsor. As you probably know, mattresses do not tend to be cheap things, and that's in part because of their notoriously high markups. But now there's another option, and that option is Casper. Casper is an online retailer of mattresses that is revolutionizing the industry by cutting out the middleman and going directly to the consumer. The result is a mattress at the fraction of the price, so... 500 bucks for a twin-sized mattress, 950 for a king-sized mattress. And not only that, they are obsessively engineered. Not too hard, not too soft. And if that's not enough, you can take them for a test ride. You get uh, 100 days, and you'll return it for free if you don't like it. So there's a special offer for Whistle Stop listeners. Get 50 bucks towards any mattress by visiting casper.com slash whistlestop. And using the promo code, say it with me now, whistlestop. Our whistle stop today is April 14, 1840, and the House of Representatives is meeting to consider the Civil and Diplomatic Appropriations Bill. Congressman Charles Ogle of Pennsylvania rises to strike out a portion of the bill labeled for alterations and repairs of the president's house and furniture, for purchasing trees, shrubs, and compost, and for a superintendence of the grounds. Mr. Ogle begins his speech, and I read here, from the congressional record as it captured the words of the distinguished gentleman. Mr. Ogle says, Mr. Chairman, I consider this a very important item in the bill, not as to the amount, but as to the principles involved in it. I doubt much the policy of this government in granting the chief magistrate 
emoluments or revenues of any kind over and above the fixed salary paid to the officer out of the Treasury of the United States. Mr. Ogle continued, more wherefores and so on and so forth, and then after a bit continued, no former chief magistrate ever acted upon the principle notoriously adopted by the present incumbent of spending the money of the people with a lavish hand and at the same time saving his own with sordid parsimony. At this point, the gallery started to get the clear indication that this was going to be no small oration about whether the money for repairs to the White House were appropriate. This was, after all, a Whig congressman talking about an incumbent Democratic president. Mr. Chairman, I object to the appropriation on higher grounds. I resist the principle on which it is demanded as anti-democratic as running counter in its tendency to the plain, simple, and frugal notions of our Republican people. And I put it to you, sir, and to the free citizens of this country, whose servant the president is, to say whether, in addition to the large sum of $100,000, which he is entitled to receive for a single term of four years, they are disposed to maintain for his private accommodations a royal establishment at the cost of the nation? Will they longer feel inclined to support their chief servant in a palace as splendid as that of the Caesars and as richly adorned? Well, this fellow is going to go on a bit, so why don't we let Ogle keep speaking and we'll check back with him now and again as he's in progress. The speech you've just heard would go on for two Days, totaling three days of oration. It is entitled The Regal Splendor of the President's Palace, and it is perhaps one of the greatest sustained attacks against a president ever given, and perhaps one of the most amusing speeches ever given on the floor of the House of Representatives. It was reprinted in the papers from April to August of 1840 and turned into pamphlets that were spread about the country. The reason this was an effective attack is that in 1937, the United States had the first full-blown panic in its history. In May 1937, this is the first year of Van Buren's presidency, all the banks in New York suspended payments, and over 300 firms failed. By January the next year, 618 banks had collapsed. Faced with hard times, the Van Buren administration didn't do much. It was not thought of that the federal government would provide assistance as a means of combating depression. Van Buren spoke to Congress and upbraided those, quote, who were prone to expect too much from government. So that made him, Van Buren, the perfect target for public anger. Down with Martin Van Ruin, shouted Whigs at their rallies. As historian William Nisbet Chambers writes, Little Van was to become the first victim of an aroused electorate in a presidential contest that followed an economic collapse. But it was more than simply the failings of a man that were at stake. It was the failings of an entire economic system, the Jeffersonian system. We now begin to see and shall feel and feel it keenly too, the effects of Jeffersonian economy of which the Democrats have so long boasted, wrote the Vermont watchman. Why is this important? Well, because the, the rise of distinct political parties created an atmosphere of permanent combat. So if there was a larger failed legacy of an economic idea that a candidate could be tied to, that made it easier 
to criticize the underlying candidate. It wasn't his fault. It was, or it was his fault, but but it was his fault because he was locked into a political party that was permanently wrong. That notion, that permanent combat between parties just made it easier to pitch to the people. Since 1800, the property requirement for voting had fallen away by degrees. And by 1840, it was pretty much gone totally. That meant the candidates were appealing to all white males. So all the circus tricks we're familiar with with politics were coming online in that campaign of 1840. They'd been out there before, of course, but they're really getting going. And in this campaign, we see both parties using them. And that's why it's important. That's why this public appeal linking Van Buren with the troubles affecting the common man was so powerful. You'll remember from our last episode uh, on 1840 that on the opposite side of the ledger, the Whigs were taking umbrage at the claim that William Henry Harrison would spend his retirement drinking hard cider at his log cabin. A Democratic newspaper out of Baltimore had made that quip, and the, the Whigs ran with it, saying, how dare the Democrats make fun of the habits of the common man. So while the one is drinking hard cider in his log cabin and uh, and proud to do so, the Whigs were were wrapping Van Buren in the guilt and gold and perfumery and finery and suffocating majesty of his White House trappings. Though uh, both campaigns would make popular appeals the centerpieces of their campaigns, they weren't boasting about it because it was still a norm left over from the beginning of the country that if the people were too much involved in picking lawmakers, it would make those lawmakers subject to the whims of the mob. So it was becoming a common practice to find ways to appeal to the people, but you didn't want to do it out loud. But despite this worry about the mob, it was obvious to foreign observers what was going on. It was around this time that Alexis de Tocqueville wrote, the people reign over the American political world as God rules over the universe. Turnout rates tell us the story. Participation in presidential elections rose from 27% in 1824 to about 55% in 1836. And in 1840, the turnout rate was 80%. It was this increased participation and this appeal to the public that caused the political sages of the day to furrow their brows. The whole country is in a state of agitation upon the approaching presidential election, such as was never before witnessed, wrote John Quincy Adams in his diary. Not a week has passed within the last few months without a convocation of thousands of people to hear inflammatory harangues against Martin Van Buren and his administration. Here is a revolution in the habits and manners of the people. Where will it end? These are party movements and must, in the natural progress of things, become antagonistical. Their manifest tendency is to civil war. We can't go too much further without getting you acquainted with the appearance of Martin Van Buren. There's a president who looked more like the wizard behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz than Martin Van Buren than I will eat my whistle-stop barometer in Sexton. If that image of Van Buren as the Wizard of Oz doesn't conjure an image for you. And by the way, we have pictures of Van Buren. We've got photographs at this point. And it's also a, a fact totally unrelated to anything interesting uh, that in 1840 is the first picture ever taken of the full moon. Anyway, back to Van Buren and the image of his face. Imagine two driver's side airbags deploying on the jowl of a man. 
this is what his sideburns looked like, that they had exploded from his face. He definitely beats Chester Arthur for the Hirsute Pursuit. And this is why he was called Sweet Sandy Whiskers. Anyway, we've gotten a bit off track. Back to the Golden Spoon oration, where the congressman continues on. It was a two-day conversation, after all. Mere meadows are too common to gratify the refined tastes of an exquisite with sweet sandy whiskers. He must have undulations, beautiful mounds, and other contrivances to ravish his exalted and ethereal soul. Hence, the reformers have constructed a number of clever-sized hills, every pair of which, it is said, was designed to resemble and assume the form of an Amazon's bosom, with a miniature knoll or hillock on its apex to denote the nipple. I'm glad that he was specific there, that it might either be a knoll or a hillock. You wouldn't want people to confuse one of the two. He was discussing there, Ogilvy, because remember, this appropriation is for, for like mulch and upkeep on the grounds. So this was his description of one of the pieces of landscape architecture. Here's a piece of doggerel from the time. Let Van from his coolers of silver drink wine and lounge on his cushion settee. Our man on a Buckeye bench can recline. Content with hard cider is he. Davy Crockett said of Van Buren, he can take a piece of meat on one side of his mouth and a piece of bread on the other and cabbage in the middle and chew and swallow each in severality, never mixing them together. A campaign metamorphic card showed a picture of Van Buren smiling with a glass of wine. And then when you pulled the tab, the wine was replaced by hard cider and his eyes rolled back in his head. The connection between a feat behavior and the alcoholic beverage of choice, is with us today. Republican candidates over the years that I've governed them have a, a set-piece routine about the Chablis-swilling Democrats and elites. And uh, by the same token, the drinking of beer is considered to be the real man's drink out on the campaign trail. And that's why you see Barack Obama in 2008 stopping by a bar and drinking Boilermakers, and the same with Hillary Clinton. It's important to be seen drinking beer with the common man and don't get caught anywhere uh, with a glass of white wine in your hand. But here's the deal, which of course you know already coming at you, which is that Van Buren was the son of a not terribly successful tavern owner, and he grew up speaking Dutch with no schooling except for what he was able to procure for himself. So William Henry Harrison, the hero of Log Cabins, had actually grown up in more luxury. And so, in reality, Van Buren was more the log cabin candidate than Harrison. But this, of course, as you know, will not be the last time image makers totally reverse the natural state of things. But it may be the first time that they were ever so successful in doing so. More amazing, though, is that this skillful depancing of the incumbent showed that the Whigs were beating the Democrats at their own game. Because... This appealing to popular sentiment with songs and distortions and anything but the serious issues of the day had been heretofore or here to then um, a Democratic trick. And so the Democratic Review wrote in June of 1880, they have at last learned from defeat the art of victory. We have taught them how to conquer us. They're writing there about the Whigs, of course. 
Said one Whig strategist, passion and prejudice, properly aroused and directed, would do about as well as reason in a party contest. Whigs would take the presidency for the Democrats, and this was no small trick. The Democrats had held the presidency for 40 years. In beating Van Buren, the Whigs were not just beating some representative of the other party, but he was the architect of Jackson's rise and the creator of the modern Democratic Party. I mean, there were obviously many people involved, but Van Buren was principally at the center of it. And the Democrats, they were linked to the original Jeffersonian conception of an agrarian society. They viewed the central government as an enemy of the people. And they remember the, uh, the election of 1824, which somehow Whistlestop has gone on this long without me doing the election of 1824. But we'll get there. We, have a, we do have a day job over here at Face the Nation. But in 1824, the corrupt bargain that had basically, uh, Jackson thought, stolen the presidency from him had only strengthened his suspicion of Washington politicians kind of controlling the, the system for themselves. And it reinforced their fears about the concentration of economic and political power. So Jackson launched a crusade against the corruption he saw in Washington, and Van Buren helped him put that coalition together of state and local parties founded on an appeal to the popular vote. And since he was the son of a New York tavern keeper, he learned his politics in the most natural setting possible. Because now politics and political parties were basically becoming more like a saloon. They weren't a salon of elites, but a saloon. You see what I did there? Not a salon, but a saloon. Salon saloon. So Van Buren was really, according to Gene Baker in the, the great book Affairs of Party, uh, Van Buren is described as the nation's first professional politician. And he wrote in his diary in 1831, for more than a quarter of a century, there was scarcely one day during which I had been wholly exempt from the disturbing effects of partisan agitation, whether as a subordinate and doubtless at times overzealous member of the political party in which I had almost literally been reared from childhood or as a leader. Politics has always absorbed my time and faculties. As a result of his political skill, Van Buren was known as the little magician. He was also known as the red fox and the wizard of the Albany Regency. And, and it was important that he came from New York because New York was as it is in so many other ways, but it was the, the hotbed of politics in America. I mean, so if you came up through New York, you had a particular set of skills and you'd been in the rough and tumble. And yet the funny thing is when 1840 election is over, and this is, I guess, a sign of how much the Whigs had learned what the Democrats knew, is that after the election's over, Van Buren would whine, why the deuce is it that they have such an itch for abusing me? I tried to be harmless and positively good-natured and a most decided friend of peace. So he didn't know what hit him. The funny thing, too, is that, again, like the, the notion of appealing to the popular will, you wanted to do it but hide that you were doing it. This meant you could use, if you spun it the right way, you could use Van Buren's political hack success against him. So Whigs called him a mere caucus politician, skilled in trickery, but not an actual statesman like the presidents who had come before. One Whig newspaper called Van Buren, a man of many offices without any deeds of public usefulness. Daniel Webster said that men like Van Buren put party above country. And here I am relying on a great book, Van Buren and the Emergence of American Popular Politics by Joel Silby. Another great book that also is uh, informing our episode today is Ted Widmer's Martin Van Buren. That's one of those New York Times in the New York Times book series, these tidy little books. My uh, friend and slate grand 
global dominance master Jacob Weisberg has written a book for the Times series on Ronald Reagan. It's just coming out. So when the Whigs whipped up the public against the Democratic incumbent, it was stealing a page uh, from the Democratic playbook. As, as Robert Gray Gunderson writes in The Log Cabin Campaign, a great book about this campaign of 1840, it was a new departure for sedate and aristocratic Whigs who heretofore had preferred attempts to limit the suffrage rather than to degrade themselves by taking their case to the rabble. No longer could genteel aristocrats regulate the course of political events merely by caucusing in panel drawing rooms. An appeal must be made to His Majesty the Voter. The appeals were made by stumping, not by the candidates, but by luminaries from the party. So what we would call surrogates today. Then they were called slangwangers, which is a term I'm going to use every chance I get from now on. It's also an excellent band name. The norm against a candidate campaigning for the job, which meant even talking about what you believed in, came, of course, as we've discussed before, from the idea that if you campaigned for yourself, you were putting your ambition ahead of the virtuous stewardship of the nation. So Harrison, William Henry Harrison, had broken this norm in 1936 when he campaigned and lost. But um, he didn't really go full out. And in this campaign, he did, spending 23 days uh, on the stump. Of course, he never said anything that anybody could pin him down for, and mostly he complained about how he was being attacked. But nevertheless, that's why this campaign uh, by a challenger represents a departure from before. Yes, he'd been on the trail in 36, but 40 was much different. Van Buren tried to break the taboo against an incumbent campaigning in July of 39. He visited New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and he enjoyed artillery salutes and the peeling bells and smiling faces of supporters. But immediately, the Whigs savaged him, saying he was degrading the office with a, a quote-unquote electioneering tour. And after that, he was stuck with governing and, and didn't want to get afoul, again, of this norm that you weren't supposed to campaign. Of course, you were all of them were campaigning, but you weren't supposed to get caught campaigning. It's the same, of course, as that kind of twilight situation between you weren't supposed to appeal to the people, but of course you had to to win. The important other element of this race is that um, this public contest, it became a public sport really, was given rocket fuel by the rise of the newspaper industry. Literacy rates were nearly 90% in the United States and the increase in technology made cheap printing easier. So in 1790, there were 92 newspapers in America. By 1828, there were 861 newspapers. And in 1840, there were 1,577 newspapers, of which 209 were dailies. And the deal here was that they were cheaper. The penny press was now in process. So you had the birth of uh, the New York Herald and the New York Sun. Again, New York, a crucial place. And now there are these New York sort of we would call them tabloids. The New York Sun's publisher said he wanted to provide the public with the news of the day at so cheap a rate as to lie within the means of all. The partisan press was not a place for reasoned argument. It was a vehicle through which any old story could be told. And thus, the most fabulous stories were told, in part because their authors wanted to be given government jobs. So the sucking up rose to really, uh, really glowing levels. Here's a typical description of a Harrison rally from a man who really wanted to get promoted and work in the administration. So deeply enthused were all that they lost sight of their ailments and became oblivious to ague, rheumatism, 
gout, neuralgia, and other ills. Such was their zeal for Harrison. Newspapers were chronicling what was perhaps the most popular spectator sport uh, at the time, which was politics, which was a nice diversion and gave color and drama to the lives of men who were, in many cases, particularly in places like Ohio, coming off the farm, their lives were kind of drab. And this was a, it was a club. And, and um, Affairs of Party, that book I mentioned earlier, talks about how in the Northeast, the political party became the vehicle through which all kinds of cultural teaching and association uh, took place. The growth of newspapers and the blossoming two parties competing with each other in constant opposition created a sense of permanent conflict that was outside of even the presidential campaign. It was not man against man, but party against party, pushing and pulling the republic in a contest that, that increasingly seemed kind of separate from the issues of the day, but of course relied on the issues of the day to give new fuel to an old grievance and an old battle, this one long continuous conflict based on, you know, the good stuff, greed and power and ambition, and not necessarily was best for the country. A great example of this notion of party suspicion is in an article in The Whig from Jonesboro, Tennessee on uh, Wednesday of October the 21st, 1840. We've been telling our friends to look but for some desperate charge against the Whigs on the eve of the approaching contest for the presidency. That it was coming, and we are now prepared to state what the charge is. The cat is now out of the wallet. Hear it and guard against it. It is that great card that the party intended to play. Two things to note here before we go on. The exclamation point is not a modern burden of the email age. Those sentences I just read you were bedecked with bangers. Second, this is this newspaper, the Whig from Jonesboro, Tennessee, is essentially warning Democrats of an October surprise, something that we now talk about regularly in campaign. The paper continues to outline a scheme where the Whig papers have letters in them from Democratic governors, quote, purporting to be indignant replies to Mr. Gates of New York, a Whig abolition member of Congress, as they charge who has sent them, them being the governors, writing these letters to the editor in Whig papers, under his official Frank, Frank being the privilege to send out mail from your office, the proceedings of what is styled as the world's convention of abolitionists. So the newspaper's charge here is that Democrats are taking umbrage, these Democratic governors are taking umbrage under false pretenses because there is no world convention of abolitionists. And the Whig congressman, Mr. Gates, is not advocating freeing all slaves. But by sending the letters in and pretending to be outraged, the Democrats, so the charge goes, are trying to make it seem like the Whigs are really closet abolitionists in the South and the West, which would actually hurt the Whigs in the South and the, the West. The paper tries to call out Democrats for this phony scheme of printing these these letters in response to a letter they never really received from a Whig congressman. Suddenly, the governors of three slave states publish in the newspapers letters of the same date containing the same matter. The thing carries its own condemnation, its own refutation upon its very face. Oh, look, Charles Ogle's still talking about the president who is strutting by the hour before golden-framed mirrors, nine feet high and four and a half feet wide. Behold a democratic peacock. 
The soul of Martin Van Buren is so very, very diminutive that it might find abundant space within the barrel of a Milner's thimble. To perform all the evolutions of the whirling pirouette avec chasse suivant, according to liberal gesticulation. I mean, he's just riffing. But because of the newspaper and the penny press and the cheapness of being able to send out pieces of paper all across the land and and people being able to snap up these pieces of paper, either through paying a very little amount or because the party was able to cheaply print and therefore scatter them like leaves, this Golden Spoon oration is being printed everywhere. And like, say, modern-day, late-night talk show hosts whose wit and amusing jibes convey a political message as they're repeated from water cooler to break room to that little place under the awning where Joe and Marty smoke their cigarettes. The humor of the Golden Spoon oration, of course, conveyed at its heart a very serious message. I promised you we'd talk about the uh, term OK as a legacy of this campaign. In the spring of 1839, the phrase began to circulate in Boston as a shorthand for all correct which was a slangy way of saying all right. And in early of 18, early in 1840, the election year, Van Buren's supporters began to use it. The, the expression was trendy on its own, but Van Buren's supporter used it as a way to, to identify their candidate who had been called old kinderhook. And so everybody was going around saying okay because it was hip, but also it had this political aspect as well. And we should note old kinderhook. Imagine nobody called Thomas Jefferson with that kind of a nickname. Old Hickory was, of course, what they'd call Jackson. So calling uh, Van Buren Old Kinderhook was an attempt to kind of sew him to the Jacksonian man of the people uh, mantle, make him seem a little more just folks. And um, I should add a little addendum on the question of booze, which we talked about in the first episode of the 1840 election. So the term booze, it turns out, already existed before the election. But again, like the term OK, it existed before the election. But then when the Pennsylvania uh, hooch purveyor, whose name last name was Booze, was pumping out the hard cider uh, in his cabin, log cabin bottles, it uh, elevated the association between the sweet, sweet spirits that get us through the long and arduous days with uh, the name Booze. You know, we should do a little uh, another fact check here. Van Buren was not that much of a fancy pants. I mean, he was a widower and he liked to go out and go to the parties. And of course, he did have that ridiculous facial hair, which suggested a certain um, flamboyance of appearance associated with people who were vain. But the White House was not glorious by any stretch. James Silk Buckingham, a member of parliament who visited in 1838, said that the White House, quote, was greatly inferior in size and splendor to the country residences of most of the British nobility. The furniture was far from elegant or costly. And he described the whole air of the mansion as unostentatious with parade or displays, well adapted to the simplicity and economy of the republican institutions of the country. The worry about political parties is that they would hold their presidents to a certain set of tenets. That would mean that the president would be beholden to those rules and not to be able to act virtuously on behalf of the country. Well, this, this worry was, of course, not ill-founded. The election of 1840 had such gargantuan turnout, not because the issues of the day 
compelled such participation, but because both parties had perfected these beginning techniques of what would be called hurrah and hokum. Popular appeal and symbolism were now, after this campaign, a permanent part of the presidency. And we see it in our elections today. Though the Republican Party is going through a paroxysm in its contest, a perfectly healthy paroxysm, the kinds of conversations you want to take place in a healthy democracy. Regardless of that fact, the party machinery continues to try to sign up voters because they know that the greatest predictor of how a person will vote in a general election is their party affiliation. And although Donald Trump's rivals say he is dangerous and not fit for the president, none of them will say that they will not support him if he's the nominee. So conscience has been overtaken by the party completely. I mean, they they don't want to say they would not support him for fear of offending the party and the people in the party. And so even though they try to make a blow for their own voice by criticizing him, they sublimate their voice and conscience for fear of running afoul of the party. So we can thank little Van for helping initiate that phenomenon and the hero of Tippecanoe and his Whig allies for making it an accepted practice across the political spectrum to use party and appeals to the people to get yourself elected. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at whistlestopatslate.com and also leave us a review on the iTunes store. Helps us spread the word and makes my kids think I'm really neat when they read from the reviews at the kitchen table. Thanks to our sponsor this week, Casper, the online retailer of mattresses. Remember, there's a special offer for Whistle Stop listeners. Get 50 bucks towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash whistlestop and using the promo code whistlestop. Our producer is Tony Field. Thank you, Tony, for putting up with my schedule. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. He makes it all happen. The Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who is no dandy, living among the perfumed and gilded halls of suffocating splendor. He's a hardworking man, and that's proven by his constant hard work on this podcast. So I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. During this presidential election season, how can you shine when the conversation turns to politics? By listening to the Panoply Network's full lineup of political podcasts. There's Podcast for America with MSNBC's Alex Wagner, the campaign history show Whistle Stop with John Dickerson, The Weeds, a deep dive into policy with boxes as recline, and the granddaddy of political podcasts, Slate's Political Gab Fest.